songs today. When he calls me, it will be paradise. Amen? Amen. We're going to take a little detour today from our study in the Sermon on the Mount. So take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, today we're going to interrupt uh, my study, or our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend a few weeks over the next uh, few weeks on looking at the theology of the family. The theology of the family. God's design for the family is being attacked more than we've ever seen, at least in our lifetime. And I believe there's many facets behind uh, what is being attacked. Ultimately, it's a demonic attack. It's an attack from the devil. Uh, What I see today in our culture is this idea of cultural Marxism. And that's what I see the enemy using as the vehicle to destroy the very fabric that God made in the design of the family. If you've never heard of that term, the idea of cultural Marxism, uh, it, the idea behind it is that the so-called systematic oppression in our day is all rooted in the very fabric of American culture. Therefore, those who advance this idea of cultural Marxism argue that all cultural tradition and traditional systems must be completely destroyed. Everything must be torn down. And that includes the white man's religion, what they would call the white man's religion. It would include Orthodox Christianity, the traditional marriage, traditional families, the Western world's tradition of law and order, uh, even American capitalism, all of that is oppressive in its nature, they would argue. So it all has to be completely destroyed so that they can build their version of paradise. Uh, classic, uh, classic Marxism, if you study it, is all rooted in economics. Okay? Uh, but our system of government, praise God, at least for now, the way that it was founded uh, with the biblical roots and constitution separated powers, it actually safeguards against what's called classic Marxism, which is all economic-based. It's all economic-driven. And so Marxism, the new Marxism, have devised this new strategy, and it's a war upon the very culture of, the historic culture of our nation. So they figure if they can't turn I'm sorry, they figure if they can turn the culture against its own heritage, which is Christian in nature, then they can move to a Marxist state of government or a statist state of government where the government is God and all are to bow down to the government. Uh, One example of this was the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. If you remember this a few years ago, Patrice Colors. She describes herself and her fellow co-founder, Alicia Garza, as, quote, trained Marxists. In 2020, their mission statement posted on their website, which was taken down later after they got a bunch of uh, flack from it. It said this, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirements by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So in other words, they deny and they 
uh, object and are seeking to disrupt, disrupt the nuclear family structure that they believe is inherent in the oppressive systems within our culture. They want to tear it down and make everything a village where we care for one another. What that really means is that you don't own anything and you have to bow down to the government and they're going to take care of you. Okay? And part of doing that is to dismantle, they say, quote, dismantle the patriarchal practice. So white man's religion, the nuclear family structure that God appointed in his word, they are seeking to absolutely destroy it so that you cannot see it. There's no lines anymore on what a traditional family might look like. Well, Black Lives Matter represents a growing attack from the enemy upon the biblically ordered family. Uh, The attack of the family, it's not anything new either. It's been from the beginning in the garden when Satan attacked the very first family and the very first marriage. Since the garden uh, and because of sin, families throughout the millennia have been fragmented, dysfunctional, destroyed. Uh, We see dysfunctional families all throughout the Bible. Uh, Since the fall of Adam, you see the very first dysfunctional family where the very first birthed person kills his brother. And there you start the dysfunction of the family, and there you start Satan's attack. Uh, Well, the attack started in the garden before the fall of man, but the attack uh, that Satan had has been from the beginning. Satan has been at war against the family since the garden, And why? Why is Satan so adamantly trying to destroy the family? Well, he hates image bearers of God, absolutely. But not only that, not only does he hate mankind because we're made in the image of God, but it's also because Satan hates the gospel. He hates the gospel. He hates Christ and Christ's church. And the, the gospel is displayed visibly in a family. The gospel is displayed in a loving marriage between a man and his wife. The gospel is displayed in a husband's sacrificial love for his wife as Christ loves the church. The gospel is displayed in a wife's submission to her husband as Christ submits as the church submits to Christ and as Christ submits to the Father. The gospel is even displayed in a child's love and honor for their parents as a child of God honors the Father. And brothers and sisters, the devil hates all of this. He hates the gospel and he is seeking to destroy families. He's not only seeking to destroy the family, he's seeking to destroy families. I mentioned this last week when, we, when I preached on the text in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that you have a target on your back if you are a Christian. And if you are a Christian in a family, uh, you have a wife and you have kids or, or no kids. If you are in a family, God, uh, excuse me, Satan has a target on your back that much more. He is seeking to destroy the family in general, but he's also seeking to destroy your family. And we must be on guard and we must know the attacks of the enemy so that we can go to Christ 
uh, to be our defender and to defend against these attacks. So he's trying to destroy the family, but he's also trying to destroy actual families. And he does this through sin by making husbands unloving, selfish, abusive, uh, making wives uh, isolated from their husband, by making wives in situations outside of the protection of their husbands, or making wives even rebellious, and making children obstinate, making children hard-hearted towards their parents, deceiving children and giving them a a false sense of what's, what's right and true and good so that they would rebel against their parents. And Satan uh, both directly and he indirectly seeks to destroy families. And he does this by destroying the true nature and definition of family. Now we see this today in our culture with our culturals bent on blurring gender lines, feminizing men, and masculinizing women. We see this by the culture rebelling against God's order of marriage and sexuality. We also see this uh, in today's culture with the Holocaust of abortion. Modern attacks on the family, in my view, can all be attributed to what's this called cultural Marxism and throw in a little bit of radical feminism, which there is, there's a link between the two with cultural Marxism and radical feminism. Uh, there's a history of feminism that we need to know about, and I won't go into today, Uh, But the biggest one was the second wave feminism, uh, which was led by Betty Friedan Friedan and Gloria Steinem. They really brought full force uh, the radical feminism that began to change the very fabric of our culture. Uh, Gloria Steinem said things like this, quote, Patriarchy requires violence or the subliminal threat of violence in order to maintain itself. The most dangerous situation, she says, for a woman is not an unknown man in the street or even the enemy in wartime, but a husband or a lover in the isolation of her own home. And this wasn't something new. This was 40, 50 years ago. This is, that, that one quote I could find sort of summarizes the whole second wave feminism that has latched on to our culture in many churches today uh, to destroy the idea of the biblical family. And we need to be aware of these things. We need to be aware of these attacks both outside the church and attacks inside the church. Uh, We desire here at Grace Covenant to build strong biblical families. Biblical and strong families build strong churches. And strong churches build strong communities. And strong communities build strong countries. We're seeing the destruction of our country because we have seen a slow destruction of biblically ordered families. We see the fragmentation of families, not just in the public sphere, but also in churches. Many churches do more to divide families than to unite them. See, we believe that we want to practice as families, especially you fathers, we need to have a vision for multi-generational faithfulness. We don't have that in today's culture. Again, there's more in our culture 
uh, to divide families than there is to unite them and to have a vision, a forward-looking vision of multi-generational faithfulness. And as we look at the scriptures today, you're going to see that that is ingrained and embedded and inherent in God's design in the history of redemption. So I want to give a biblical overview of the family Uh, Today, we're going to look at more of a high-level theology of the family. Uh, And then in the subsequent weeks, we're going to look at each individual duties and blessings within the family. uh, For mothers and fathers and parenting. uh, For husbands and for wives. And we're going to seek, uh, by God's grace, over the next few sermons, to equip and encourage you uh, by forming your idea of a family and forming your family into what my friend Scott Brown calls an institute of love. And that's what a family is. And that's what I want to form our families to be, an institute of love. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 1, because that's where it all begins. The first thing we must understand is that, very simple, families are created and defined by God and God alone. God is the creator. He gets to set the rules. God created family, and he defined what family is. So God established what's called the creation mandate and the marriage covenant from the beginning, and this is what sets the parameter for the family. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read, uh, starting at verse 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over all the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So here you have what's called the procreation mandate is that mankind's purpose is to procreate be fruitful and multiply and within that procreation mandate god gives the mechanism to how that is to be accomplished and it's only within the confines of marriage now look at the next chapter chapter 2 starting at verse 20 The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused uh, a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We see here in this passage not not only the covenant of marriage, But if you look at the passage, who is initiating everything? Who is the author? 
Adam didn't sit there and think as he was naming the animals, hey, all these animals have a partner, but I don't have one. Let me go figure out some way to make me a partner. God was the initiator here in the beginning. God is the author and the originator of marriage. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, where God, again, is the initiator, he says, quote, Moses now relates that marriage was divinely instituted, which is especially useful to be known. For since Adam did not take a wife to himself at his own will, but received her as offered and appropriated to him by God, the sanctity of marriage hence more clearly appears because we recognize God as its author. The more Satan has endeavored to dishonor marriage, the more we should vindicate it from all reproach and abuse that it may receive its due reverence. So what John Calvin is saying here, and I wholeheartedly agree, because God is the author and the originator of marriage, the more that Satan seeks to dishonor marriage, the more we Christians should stand up to vindicate it from its reproach and abuse, he says. So we must reject as Christians any attempt to redefine marriage or the family. We cannot be silent on this issue. But what we see are many Christians and unfortunately many pulpits and many pastors staying quiet and not speaking out against this. And why is that? Why are we not seeing more Christians with the onslaught and the attacks against marriage and folks trying to redefine marriage or destroy marriage or make it however they want to be? Why are we not seeing more pastors lead in this area? But instead, what what do we see? We see absolute silence in many evangelical pulpits. There's a fear of man more than the fear of God. And brothers and sisters, you and I cannot stay quiet about this any longer. We see what it's done, not only to our nation and our culture, but look what it's done to the very church, so-called church of God, where you have so-called reverence paying homage to a choir full of drag queens inside what they would call a church of God. We cannot stay quiet. My friends, we must not only seek to vindicate marriage and family from the pagan world who seek to destroy it, but we must also expose and rebuke churches and even evangelical churches who are at best apathetic on the issue and at worst affirming on the issue. You hear what I'm saying? It's one thing to easily rebuke non-believers and atheists and pagans. They're going to be pagans. They're going to be sinners. We shouldn't be surprised at that. But friends, we need to clean house first. We as Christians need to stand up, expose, and rebuke churches. Yeah, I said churches. We need to rebuke churches and pastors who are apathetic at best and at worst affirming. When I say that, I mean apathetic on the marriage ordinance, 
the definition of a family according to God's word and those who would allow the distortion of it. Well, to give you an example, um, Andy Stanley, who has been coming unhinged from Christianity over the last few years, he hosted a conference this very weekend called the, quote, Unconditional Conference in Atlanta. Now, from the event page, it says this, quote, This two-day premiere event is for the parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. You will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind. We deeply desire this time will bring about healing and restoration. No matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. End quote. Quieter middle space. Well, this gives the impression that this conference is somewhat neutral and not going to be hard-lined on one side or another, the quieter middle space. But when you dive into the speakers, you get a little bit of a different uh, perspective. Two of the speakers, uh, Justin Lee and Brian Netzel, are said to be in active same-sex relationships. Uh, Lee, Justin Lee, founded the Gay Christian Network back in 2001, where they sought to affirm people who claim to be Christian. They sought to affirm their homosexuality, that it was okay and permissible as long as you loved God. I don't think that's quieter middle space. Another speaker here at this conference, David Gushi, is an LGBTQ plus Christian advocate who believes the historic church teaching on homosexuality was flat out wrong. So he acknowledges that the historic teaching on homosexuality is that it's a sin, but he just flat out denies it. He says that the last 2,000 years of church history was wrong. He writes in one of his writings, quote, I am instead asking whether devout gay and lesbian Christians might be able to participate in the covenantal, marital, sexual, ethical standard, one person for life, faithful and exclusive, in a loving, non-exploitative, non-coercive, reciprocal relationship. That is the highest expression, he says, of Christian sexual ethics, which in fact a goodly number are already doing. He says, I can't find a compelling reason to say no anymore. This is somebody speaking at this conference that's happening this weekend. And that doesn't seem like a quiet middle space. Uh, There was an article by Albert Moeller that goes into more details about this that was very eye-opening. Uh, to me, and you may say, you may write this off and say, you know what, Mark, who cares? That's Andy Stanley. He's been going in the wrong direction for years. This isn't surprising. So, so what? You know, you might say, just, just write him off. But friends, how can we vindicate the holiness of marriage and family in the face 
of a pagan world's attacks, when they turn and look at these big platforms like Andy Stanley, perpetuating their same message. They look confused. Why would they listen to us when they turn to the guys like Andy Stanley where, where they're affirming their very message? So I say all that because we must expose this. We must refute it and we must rebuke those who are, quote, inside the church. I would say even harsher than those outside the church. Like I said, Sinners are going to be sinners. Unbelieving world are going to be unbelievers. The pagans are going to be pagans, but we need to rebuke those that claim to be followers of Christ. We need to rebuke them with a harsher rebuke. And that's the model that we see with Jesus, our Lord, our Lord and Savior. He rebuked the Pharisees much harsher because they were leading people to hell with their works-based plan of salvation. And in the same way, guys like Andy Stanley, when they have these conferences where they're claiming to be a quieter middle space are bringing in speakers who would then affirm parents of children who are in a sexual relationship that God calls an abomination that's going to lead them straight to hell. Why is the church not speaking up against this? It's fear of man. We must be vigilant and diligent, and we must be quiet no longer. So this church, me, obviously, uh, we won't stay silent. We have to speak. Come hell or high water, we will seek here in this church to restore and to vindicate the beauty of family, which starts with a marriage as God has defined it. And I want to encourage you all to do the same. And with it comes persecution. And we need to understand that. We're promised persecution. Uh, Jesus says that in his word. Uh, You shall have uh, tribulations. It's even said that whoever seeks to live a godly life shall suffer persecution. And that's not just a godly quiet life where you're not speaking the truth of God. When you're living a godly life, you are speaking truth and defending God. So this doesn't mean that we're all called to go out and, you know, proclaim Uh, the biblical sexual ethic in the open air. But what it does mean is that whatever context God has put you in life and those around you, God has called you to speak truth to those people, whatever context that may be. So we must understand that families are created first and foremost and defined by God. Second, when you look at Scripture, families are jurisdictional. Families are jurisdictional. What do I mean by that? Well, God grants specific authority to the family. Uh, God has three sovereign spheres of authority that we can derive from his word. And these authorities govern creation. These three authorities are the church, the state, and the family. Uh, The church has the keys. The state bears the sword. The family bears the rod. All three of these Sovereign spheres of authority are required by God to submit to him and to his law. These three authorities, the church, the state, and the family, are required to be governed how God has regulated in his word. God has given us an instruction manual on how to have church, how to be a church, 
God has given the instruction manual for governing authorities on how they are to govern. And God has given the instruction manual for families on how we are to govern our families. And God uses each of these spheres of authority to constrain man's sin by his law. Uh, They're supposed to work together to restrain man's sin and to govern the conscience. So the church has the keys to the kingdom. We proclaim the gospel, but God also uses the church to constrain our sin, does he not? And with believers through sanctification. Uh, But even within the realm of the church, when God's law is preached, even unbelievers are constrained by the law of God in the church. So God uses the church. He also uses the state to constrain man's sin by punishing evildoers and rewarding those who do good. And God also uses the family to restrain man's sin. And the instrument to restrain man's sin within the family is the rod, the rod of discipline. God uses uh, the family to, when, when biblically ordered, uh, to govern the conscience of children. When we raise our families in the Lord and we raise our children in the Lord and we hold them to God's law with the gospel and we teach them that no, this is wrong not because it annoys mom and dad, uh, but this is wrong because God says it's wrong. And here is your consequence. What we're doing is we're, we're forming their conscience. And God uses the church, the state, and families to govern society's consciences. Uh, we're seeing a, what John MacArthur calls a vanishing conscience throughout our land. Uh, because we have a government that no longer submits to Christ and submits to his law, but we have a government that, that enacts laws according to their own will, their own desires, and their own ungodly thought. Then we have churches who are not being biblically ordered and are falling apart as well. And then we have families that aren't biblically ordered, that are not teaching the children the things of the Lord, teaching God's law. So we have a vanishing conscience within our land. So families are jurisdictional, which means that if you have a family, you have children, and you're married, that God has granted you a certain jurisdiction that you are responsible for. You have an authority within your family, an authority that the church doesn't have, an authority that the government doesn't have, and that is detailed in the pages of Scripture. Now, sometimes these jurisdictions can overlap. Okay? They're not all 100% mutually exclusive. So within the confines of a family, when there becomes a, a husband or a wife uh, that is in perpetual, unrepentant sin, well, then there is a process by which we have church discipline. Okay? Or uh, if there's a family situation where there's an abuse happening, well, then you have that overlaps into the civil government. Because the civil magistrate is to enact laws to protect people from abuse. So they're not completely mutual exclusive. Uh, They do overlap. But God has given very narrow authority and narrow responsibilities for each jurisdiction. So within the family, God has given families a very narrow lens of jurisdiction by which you are to govern your family. But it is one sphere that that God has given uh, to govern societies is the family. Next, families are patriarchal. 
Families are patriarchal. Now, I know just by saying patriarchal may cause some people to cringe. It may cause others the gnashing of teeth. Hopefully nobody in here. Uh, But to the outside world, you use this term, and it will cause horns to come out in the back of people's heads. Just hearing the word patriarchal uh, causes angst in the world. But I make no apologies for declaring this truth. Families are patriarchal. Another way to say this is male headship. Families are declared by God to have one head, just one. Long time ago from an old preacher said anything that has two heads is called a monster. Okay? Families have one head, and that is the husband, that is the father. And we see this from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when God said, It is not good for man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 uh, and 9, where he says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him, or corresponding for him, is what the text in Genesis says. The woman was made for man, the Bible says, This gives us a picture of male headship, and this was before the fall. There's some false teaching out there that says, well, you know, the the man being the head of the home, uh, that was a result of the fall, you know, where God says that uh, the woman's desire would be for their husband, and he will rule over you, okay? Uh, There's some false teaching that says, well, so people who are in Christ, since there's no Jew nor Greek, there's no head. That the husband and wife are just to be mutually submissive to each other, and the husband's not the head, the woman's not the head, uh, that that was, that was after the fall. But we see med- male headship before the fall. We see it in a number of different ways. I just read you a couple of passages. But also we see this when Adam exercises his headship when God brings all the animals to him by naming the living creatures. Then it says that woman was taken from man. So we see before the fall that God created male headship. God commissioned uh, the man to exercise this before the fall. Ephesians 5.23 For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Uh, Then the very next verse in Ephesians, verse uh, 24 of chapter 5. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So families are patriarchal. There's one head, and that is the husband. That is the father. And in our... Uh, subsequent weeks, we're going to go through what that looks like uh, because male headship is not exercised with, hey, I'm the head of this house. You do what I tell you to do. It's not the men beating their chest and I'm in charge and, and all of that. There is a head and what that looks like we're going to dive in uh, in the upcoming weeks. Uh, but the point is, is that you know we've lost and there is an attack on the patriarchal uh, headship of homes. 
And when it's rightly understood, when husbands are operating with the love that Christ has for his church, the unconditional love, when men are the spiritual leaders of their home, when they are actually operating in the biblical way that God prescribes male headship to operate, it, it is a beautiful thing. And we're going to go through that in, uh, in another sermon. But suffice to know for now that families are patriarchal. Next, families are covenantal. Families are covenantal. God works through redemption history, redemptive history, uh, by establishing covenants with mankind. We see early on that families are a means by which God uses to execute his covenant. Uh, if you're still in Genesis, turn to chapter 9. We see in chapter 9 God establishing his covenant with Noah. This is known as the Noahic Covenant. This, along with the covenant of works that was established with Adam, governed the entire human race. God made this covenant with Noah. Noah is the, is the head, so to speak, uh, the federal head of the Noahic Covenant. And all of us come from the descendants of Noah. Therefore, this covenant that he's making with Noah governs the entire human race. So what happens here? We know the story of Noah. God sent out, flooded the earth. But it's also interesting, when he saved certain people, he didn't just save people, he saved families. He saved Noah's family. He saved his son's families. So he saved four families. But look at, Noah, uh, look at Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to read starting at verse 1. <clears throat> and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here he's repeating the procreation mandate that he gave Adam from the beginning that I read earlier. It says, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh within its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will, I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. But as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So here we see that God renews what's called the cultural mandate. This is what he gave to Adam, and he, and he renews it with, uh, with Noah here. And this is part of these creation covenants that God made with man. And this covenant is over all mankind. It still applies today to all of mankind because we are descendants of Noah. <clears throat> there are two glaring duties that we see here with the cultural mandate. First is man's duty to preserve life, where he says in verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And why? For in the image of God 
he made man. So we see here that man's duty, all of mankind's duty, is to preserve life. Second, mankind's duty, as we see here, is to preserve the family. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 9 and again in verse 7. And the word where he says, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth, that word literally means to swarm the earth. To swarm the earth. In verse 7 here, the command to be fruitful and multiply, to swarm the earth, it contrasts with the prohibition against murder. Don't kill people, but have babies. Don't kill people, but populate the earth. Don't kill people, swarm the earth. Don't kill the innocent, but procreate. And that procreation only comes by the means of the family. This is the cultural mandate. So therefore, all mankind, all societies, all cultures, all governments created by man have a duty to protect life and to protect the family. To protect life, to protect procreation, which comes through means of the family. So we have a duty under God to protect, promote, and preserve the lives of the innocent and to protect the parameters of the family which God has established. So it's inherent in this cultural mandate since we're commanded to swarm the earth, to procreate, have lots of kids. We are bound to then protect the means by which God accomplishes this mandate. So any society or government that twists, tries to redefine or pervert the family through homosexual marriage, transgenderism, or any other sexual perversions are in direct rebellion against the God who covenanted with all of mankind. It is not, it is not just preferences, friends. It is an actual rebellion against God. So you have to understand, when you see perversion running rampant in the streets, when you see gay weddings in the public square, when you see drag queen story hour and the perversion of sexualizing children, you have to understand that that is a direct rebellion and mockery of God. That's how we have to look at it as Christians, not just, oh, you just need to pray for them, you know? Yes, absolutely pray for them, but when we have that view, brothers and sisters, that that is rebellion and mocking God's institute from the beginning, when it is mocking God's order from Genesis 1, 2, 9, and so on, and all throughout the Bible, that it is a mockery and a public display of rebellion towards the God who covenanted with all of mankind. The people who are making a mockery of God's order are all descendants of Noah. And so by their actions, they are shaking their fists at a holy and reverent uh, God. So we have to look at it that way. And the same goes with abortion in the Holocaust, uh, the Holocaust of our day. It's an, it's an affront on the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. 
It's an attack on the procreation mandate. So any governing authorities who gives approval of any and has any laws that approve the unjust taking of innocent life inside the womb will be held accountable to a thrice holy God. Protecting life and protecting family is the duty of both the church by proclaiming the truth, but it's also the duty of the, church, of the state to protect this. Did you know that three of the Ten Commandments that God gives fall under preserving life and family? Three of the ten. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, and I'll let you guess uh, the other one. Uh, the church is also to protect life and family by being the prophetic voice to the culture. Just as John the Baptist protected family by declaring the unlawfulness of a marriage to a pagan king. He wasn't quiet. So we see this very on that families are covenantal. Families are what God uses as a means to accomplish his covenantal uh, plans with mankind. Now, if you move over to Genesis 17, we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. God established his covenant with Abraham that he would make an everlasting covenant to both give him the land of Canaan, but also to make him a father of many nations and to make his descendants as numerous as the sand in the sea and the stars of the sky. This covenant that God made with Abraham also has a familial a family aspect to it. So in Genesis chapter 17, when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he did so with Abraham and the families that would come through his seed. Look at verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you throughout their generations. See, right there, we're talking about families. God's getting ready to, to make a covenant with him that would go through his generations after him, the families that would come after him. And he says it would be an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Then look at chapter 18. We see a glimpse of why God chose Abraham to make this covenant. Chapter 18, look at verse 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So God had families in mind that Abraham's faith, righteousness, and justice would be passed down from one generation to the next. Look at the text again. I have chosen him. Why? So that. Here's the reason. So that Abraham may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And why would he do that? So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So that God would fulfill his covenant promises in Abraham, he chose Abraham so that he would command his children after him, so that he would have a biblically ordered family, 
that he would command his children to do righteousness and justice so that he would bring upon all that he had spoken about with Abraham. And what was that? Well, it's referring temporarily uh, in, the, in, the, in the short term, the land of Canaan. Yes, that was one of the covenant promises. But further reaching, brothers and sisters, he would bring about through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So these covenantal, covenantal promises are fulfilled in Christ and the church as the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. And the means are through the family. The primary means are through the family. This is not negating evangelism. We see that with the early church. But the primary means that we see throughout Scripture of God passing down the faith from one generation to the next is by way of family. By way of dads commanding their children after them to keep the way of the Lord as it was said of Abraham by doing righteousness and justice. Now, by faith, the Bible says we are children of Abraham. And as Jesus told the Jews, if you are the children of Abraham, why don't you do the deeds of your father Abraham? Should we as children of Abraham not be doing the deeds of Abraham and commanding our children after us and looking at multi-generational Faithfulness, But I'm afraid many churches, many Christians have lost sight of God's design for the family. So this is the primary means we see. Now, let's look at another example. Exodus chapter 12. We'll look at the Passover. We see here in Exodus, God is rescuing his chosen people from bondage, which are Abraham's descendants which he says in Exodus 2.24, remember when he remembered the Israelites in Egypt, it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God is rescuing his people from bondage. God, in judging Pharaoh, implements the last plague, right? We know this. He's going to strike the firstborn dead of all the Egyptian, Egyptians. And he institutes the Passover to Typify the coming of Christ, the coming Messiah, who by his blood shed for us, we too pass over from death to life. But look at Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintels and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give to you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. Now look at verse 26. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. 
who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptian but spared our homes. So there's a theme here that God again uses families to pass down faith from one generation to the next using God-fearing families. Multi-generational faithfulness. Now look ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Israelites are on the brink of going into the promised land. There's a new generation that were born in the wilderness, and Moses is giving them instructions. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And listen here, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then look at down in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before the eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our forefathers. Do you see this wonderful picture of multi-generational faithfulness? In verse 6 of this chapter, you actually see three, uh, excuse me, I'm on our next text. Go to Psalm 78. We're going to see the same thing. And we're covering a lot of ground today because I want to show you and really make the emphasis that God uses the family to pass down faith from one generation to the next. Look at Psalm 78, verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have known, heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise 
and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like the fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So here in verse 6, you have three generations of faithfulness. Uh, We see this, that God uses families for parents to teach their children the faith and to teach their children to teach their children the great works of God, the great faith of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we see this as the same means through the New Testament and the New Covenant. Parents, primary father, primarily fathers, are commanded to be the spiritual leader and the spiritual educator of the home. And they ought to be the resident theologian. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this text in Ephesians, it echoes all that we see in the Old Testament. And I just gave you a sampling of what we see, generational faithfulness. But, but this echoes all that we see in the New Testament in regard to the family as being the primary means to pass down uh, the faith of God. And friends, we have totally lost that in today's culture. We have lost the idea that families are the primary means. And if you look throughout the entire, entirety of Scripture... When it comes to the spiritual lives of children and when it comes to the spiritual education, all commands throughout Scripture and the teaching of children are commanded to the parents. Modern churches and Christians have absolutely missed this pattern throughout all Scripture. Uh, Christians and many churches today do more to split and fragment the family than teaching these biblical patterns and commands for families. No longer are men taught to be held accountable to be the loving head of their home, to be the provider, protector, and priest. No longer are men being taught to be the home's resident theologian, washing their wives in the water of the word, systematically discipling their children, and taking responsibility for the vision and the mission of the home, which is the biblical pattern. As a result, instead, we see that men, husbands, fathers uh, become the, the resident child. They just become another child in the home or, or even a, a, a doofus. He is portrayed at. The husband is portrayed oftentimes uh, as the doofus. And, and the wives are portrayed in our culture as being the head of the house and everybody just submitting to the wife of the home. And the man's just some idiot that is being treated like another Child, And this has infiltrated the church to a much degree. As a result, men in general become very apathetic. Men in general just sit back and they take their cues from the culture. Uh, furthermore, churches no longer teach parents to be the primary means to their children's spiritual well-being and education. Churches no longer teach biblical child-rearing patterns and discipline and how to command their children after them to lead them in righteousness and justice and to teach them the faith. 
Instead, churches spend thousands and, and even millions of dollars on age-segregated programs, giving the message to parents that we're the professionals. We have paid thousands of dollars for this professional who is not old enough to be a dad, who wears tight clothes, but he's the professional that's going to teach your children. Don't do this at home. We have trained experts. They've gone to seminary to learn how to, how to teach children. But friends, again, all of the commands in Scripture for training and teaching children are to the parents. We don't have children's church in this church, if you haven't noticed. We don't have youth groups in this church. We don't have any family, fragmenting, age-segregated programs. And that's not by accident. It's by design. We believe that churches should equip parents, men, and women to be the spiritual leaders of the home. Coming to a church like this often will expose gaps in families. You know, I remember the first time we went to a church that didn't have the youth groups, didn't have a nursery to shuffle the kids off at, didn't have children's church, and I sat down. We had four kids at the time, and, you know, all the other families, their little ones are sitting so quietly and uh, listening to an hour-long sermon, and I'm spending the whole time grabbing my kids, telling them to be quiet. They, uh, they could not, and sorry, they, they're older now, but, they're, um, but that was my fault. It wasn't their fault. It exposed a gap. And as a father, at first, I, I rebelled against it. I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. But then I saw that other families were doing it to somewhat successful extent. There was a gap there that my wife and I had to deal with when it come, came to discipline. And so I went and I found out what those other parents were doing. Uh, and it was hard work, but what happened was it exposed me for not being consistent in my training and discipline. Uh, so most churches don't have this type of structure, so it's just easy to shuffle the kids off and let them play for an hour. Uh, but what we see is my last point here. What we're going to see is that families are made by God to worship together both in church and at home. So here at this church, we don't have children's church, like I mentioned. We don't have all those programs. Now, I'm not saying there's anything inherently sinful about a church having those types of things, but we're not going to do for you, mom and dad, what you are called to do by God. But we are going to train you. We're going to equip you. We're going to come alongside you when you want to give up. And we're going to train you to be the spiritual leaders of your home, to teach your children, to discipline them. We're going to equip you, and we're going to build upon the foundation, the foundational belief that parents, parents are the primary spiritual leaders for their children. This is the ordinary means God uses to convert children, to bring them to the faith, our moms and dads who are faithful, teaching and and, and loving their children and disciplining their children. So we see God is a covenantal God and he uses families throughout his covenants to accomplish his redemptive work. Lastly, families are made to worship together. I hinted at this. 
Uh, We see patterns throughout the entire scripture that families, God makes them to worship together at home and at church. We can derive many biblical examples and commands of this. Now, we're going to dive into this a little bit more when I teach on the biblical model for parenting and discipling children. But both in the Old and New Testament, we see very clear examples of family, families worshiping together. In Job chapter 1, verse 5, uh, we see this example of Job bringing his family together for worship. It says, When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, his family, rising up early in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Continually. Job led his family in regular private worship. Job took his family, his children with him to offer sacrifices to the Lord. This was their family worship. The text says he did this continually. The original word in the Hebrew uh, is two words, actually. It means all or the whole and day or like all the days. So in other words, Job conducted family worship all of his days. Job took his fatherly duties seriously pleading and interceding for his children. Did you, did you hear what the text said? He would say to himself, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That should be a motivating factor for us to bring our children around the word of God, not just on Sundays, but every day. Bring them around the word of God and teach them, pray with them, read the word of God to them, dads, and perhaps your children are not converted. God uses the ordinary means of of you being the spiritual leader of your home and bringing them to the word of God to bear upon their heart to save your children. So we see this example with Job. We also see it with Abraham. I read the the verses uh, earlier. We see this with uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 31. And, you know, I won't read it, but this, is, this gives us the one example of how when the people of God came together, all the people of God came together, including their children. When they all came together, when Moses called them and to say, assemble the people, it said the men, the women, and the children were to come together. The children weren't shuffled off when the people of God come together to worship. It is to be all the people of God and all of our children. We see the example with Joshua. We all know the very famous words of Joshua where he says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua understood that God made families to worship together. He resolved to lead his family in service to the Lord. The statement presupposes that Joshua was already serving as spiritual leader in his home. He was not passive, friends. He was not passive. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 34, there was another assembly come together where they came to hear the book of the law. It says, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel. 
the whole assembly of God's people, it says, included women and children. Well, we see New Testament examples of families worshiping together. Paul's epistles were sent to actual churches, and they were to be read to the church. So when you have passages in Scripture that are directly commanding children to obey their parents in the Lord, that is in the first person. Paul is addressing the children who are in the church. So when that letter was read, it was Paul commanding the children in first person because they were there, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So we see families worshiping together. Families were never made to be so fragmented and divided as you see today, both inside and outside the church. You drive by a typical neighborhood, even Christian families, you drive by a typical neighborhood at about 9 o'clock at night when it's dark. And what do you usually see? If you could kind of peek in, you usually see a divided household. You don't see families coming together to worship or to do anything. You see all the different family members, usually on a different screen, in a different room of their house. You don't see families coming together to eat dinner together or to worship God together. We have seen so much fragmentation of the families, uh, even amongst Christians, and that is not God's design for the family. God's design for the family is to worship God together and to do it all the time. If we don't have time to worship God as a family together on a daily basis, then friends, it might be time to reevaluate the activities that we have in our lives. I mean, what can be more important, dads and moms, what can be more important than using the ordinary means of grace that God gave you to bring your family around the table, the word of God that will convert their souls. There used to be a day where uh, sports activities, uh, they used to not have any sports on Wednesdays or Sundays. I don't know if you remember, I remember that when I was young. But now that doesn't matter. Sports, activities, Wednesdays, Sundays, all of that, right? And so some of you that are in activities, you have that challenge. Or what do I do? Do I, do I miss a Sunday because there's a game or a practice? Uh, there are even, I've heard stories, firsthand stories that uh, parents have been told, if your kids don't go to this activity on this Sunday, then they're not going to be able to perform or play or whatever. But friends, what's more important? What are you telling your kids when you miss gathering on the Lord's Day for an activity that you think is so important? And what are you telling your kids when you're full of activities every day that you're gone and you're like a taxi cab and you're gone from sunup to sundown or you're gone throughout the evenings and when you get home it's 10, 11 o'clock and you're so tired and there's no time and no energy to, to open God's word and to read and to pray together as a family. What are we telling our children about what's important in life. So we see the biblical pattern throughout Scripture is that families had a sole focus, a Christ-centered home and a Christ-centered family has a sole focus that we are going to focus on Christ. We're going to gather together on a daily basis. We're going to go to church together. We're going to worship God together. 
And that is how God made families. And that is what he uses moms and dads as a means to save your children. So to conclude, I want to ask you, what is your view of the family? How do you picture families? And does it align to God's view of the family? Do you view your family, as I mentioned earlier, as an institute of love? Do you view your family as a family that seeks to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you view family in a long-term, as a long-term vision as what God's going to use to advance the kingdom and to build his church? Or do you view family as an annoyance, a dysfunctional reality in your life? As a low priority? Family should be training grounds for your kids' future marriages. Training ground for your families, for your children's future church life. Family should be viewed as the means that God uses to fulfill his covenant promises. And family should be viewed as so important as God sees it that we would be zealous to speak up against the enemy's attacks upon it. Such a lofty challenge it is to put our perspectives on the family as God does. We need to view it as a high mountain because God views it as a high mountain, but a mountain that we, by God's grace, can climb and attain and live within a family as an institution of love. You know, Vodi Bauckham once said that before we have revival, which we're getting ready to pray about, we need a reformation. I couldn't agree more. Family is one of those areas where we need a complete reformation in our day. When we have fragmented families and we have unbiblically ordered families and we're praying for revival, uh, I don't believe God's going to bring it. I believe we need a reformation. Family is one of them. But friends, it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts now. So I encourage you to reform the way you look at family and reform the way uh, you look at family and, and reform it as how God sees it. And in areas where we need to repent, repent, move on, uh, turn and look forward by faith, And by God's grace, we will build strong families in this church so we can see the gospel of the kingdom of God go forth in such a mighty way where he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your uh, grace that you've given us. God, thank you that you've given us your word to where we can understand what a family is. Lord, I pray that you would help us to order our lives, Lord, order our families according to your word. And God, help us uh, to view the holiness of the family and marriage and parenting in such a way, Lord, that we would be zealous to defend the attacks against it. Lord, we desperately need a reformation in our land with the family. God, help us to not make our family an idol, But God, help us 
to make our family in such a way, Lord, that it's gospel-centered, Christ-centered, that we would renew our minds by the word of God and to have biblically ordered marriages, to have biblically ordered families so that we could have a strong church, strong community, and may you be glorified in it. We thank you. We give you honor.